uh, a biblical theology of song. And maybe just to encourage where I'm going from here is I would love, and I think it's the case, but I would love it to be the case that when we gather and we worship, the voices of the men are the loudest and the strongest when we worship. And I just want to suggest that this is actually important work, uh, that it's, it's work that God has given us to do. Um, everybody, all his people, children, uh, women uh, are supposed to sing. But ultimately, my charge is that we would be the most zealous and eager in our song as we worship the Lord and lift up his word. Amen. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Let me start out with this line from Joy to the Earth, uh, the, the Christmas carol. Um, Joy to the Earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. And I know that Isaac Watts, when he wrote the hymn, was not saying exclusively men. He means mankind. Um, but the point I think he's making in that psalm is that it goes on to say, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. The point is that creation can't praise God. Remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and all the children are saying, Hosanna to he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the leaders want him to stop that. He says, listen, the rocks themselves would cry out. We as priests over creation give voice to creation when creation can't. And what the scripture says, or excuse me, what Isaac Watts says is what happens is creation echoes that back, but it's got to start with our voices. And so just an encouragement that um, that is part of our priestly task as created in the image of God, created as sons of Adam, that we are the ones who voice creation's praise, to voice creation's desire um, to, uh, to, to recognize God. So starting all the way back at the beginning, I want to suggest, and you you see this in several places in Scripture, but I want to suggest that God himself sings. This is one reason we should sing. Uh, God himself sings. Uh, This is why J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both have in their creation stories in their fictional universes the creator bringing creation into being through song. All right, we see this, if anybody's read The Silmarillion, uh, we see this in that story. I'm going to read just a little bit from um, The Magician's Nephew, which has this moment when Aslan sings Narnia into creation, so bear with me. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought that it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices. More voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. If you had seen and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. And of course, Lewis is tapping into, among other things, Job, when Job, or when God asks Job, were you there when the morning stars sang, right? When God uh, talks about creating the universe. 
But if you go to the Genesis account itself, in Genesis chapter 1, there's like a meter and a rhythm to it, right? Every day, evening and morning, the first day, and it's punctuated by, and it was so, and other things like, and God saw that it was good. But it also crescendos, because as the days go by, God does more. He blesses on the fifth day. And it culminates on the sixth day, when there is this great... Uh, This great ultimate, God says, let us make. And at the end of that sixth day, God saw that it was very good. It's like the the resolution of good music, right? Where there's this sense of coming home at last and everything is right and everything is as it ought to be. And I want to suggest that there's something about God himself that's musical. All right. It's notoriously difficult to talk about the Trinity. All right. Sometimes people say, well, the Trinity is like steam and water and ice. Right. It's it's the same thing, but it's in three different forms that breaks down because God's not a material that divides like that. And one illustration that uh, the theologian Jeremy Begbie has suggested is music. Think about three people talking at once. That would be cacophonous. We heard it in there. But think about three people singing at once in harmony. Their voices occupy one another's space without negating one another. And I think, it's a, I think it's a very powerful and significant picture of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their voices are all in harmony. And we're invited to join the song that they sing. Amen? Amen. Now, the first human singer, of course, is Adam. And this is where I would encourage you, if you have a good translation that, that has the, uh, when there's poetry, that shows you that it's poetry, I think those are helpful because I would suggest probably almost anywhere in the Bible that you see poetry, it's probably song. And who remembers where Adam uh, has poetry, where Adam breaks out in poetry, and I would suggest breaks out in song. Does anybody remember? It's when Eve shows up. He sings the first song a human sings. Behold, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? So he immediately breaks out in song. And this is, again, I think it's part of his task to see what God has made and to rejoice in what God has made. And I'll say this several times in several ways. Singing is elevated speech. Singing is speech transfigured. And when he sees Eve, he sings this great song of benediction. And then very quickly in Genesis, we see the first sinful song because song is not in and of itself good the first sinful song does anybody know and it's kind of likened to adam's but it's like a an evil version of adam's song does anybody remember yeah it's lamech right lamech has how many wives two and he says i killed a young man for striking me right and he goes on to say i will be avenged 70 fold so in scripture song doesn't is not automatically good but it is this elevated speech that god has given us to celebrate him Going forward in scripture, uh, maybe the next most significant song we get to is in Exodus. After Israel crosses the Red Sea, Moses sings what comes to be known as the Song of Moses. He sings this great song of celebration with the refrain that the women take up, the horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. And what you see in scripture, you saw it with Adam, is when God does something new, something powerful, song breaks out. The people of God break out in song. And Moses taught the people this song. In fact, the song is going to show up one more time in the book of Revelation. They're still singing. We will still be singing the song of Moses all the way in the last day. So when God acts, people sing. People break out in song. As we move forward in the scriptural story, um, Israel sings. And Israel is called to be a musical people. And maybe the best way to illustrate this is when they take the land... 
how did their first conquest of the land is musical? How does that happen? Joshua takes the city of Jericho. And what are they called to do? March around seven times. And on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then blow the trumpets and shout. The conquest of the land, I would suggest in part, is a conquest of worship. And we're going to see that theme. That worship, that the singing of the people of God, that the celebration of the people of God in song, is the tip of the spear in God's attack on the kingdoms of darkness. And so again, if we're going to be Uh, Christian men who are doing spiritual warfare, we're called to be singers. We're called to start the warfare in song and worship and thanksgiving to God. We get into the book of Judges and there's another song. This one's a duet. Anybody remember this one? This is Deborah and Barak, right? They they conquer Jabin, uh, the king of Canaan. And after the conquest, they celebrate a big, long duet detailing all that God did uh, in conquering, uh, in conquering Jabin. And then of course we get to David and David is among other things known as the sweet singer of Israel. And I want to lean on David a little bit because, uh, David is a manly man. And I don't know that we often associate manly men with poetry and song, but we should because David is a manly man and he writes countless Psalms. Uh, he is a man who loves poetry Um, And I think in many ways, he's our model. We know he sings alone as a shepherd because many of his psalms seem to come out of his devotional time alone with God in the wilderness taking care of sheep. He's written countless songs and sung countless songs to God. And they take shape as he becomes the leader of Israel and meditates on, I'm a shepherd and I've shepherded sheep. And uh, he expands on that. But we also know as Christians, and this comes from the New Testament, that the songs of David, the psalms in the Old Testament are really Jesus' songs. They're Jesus' prayers. And I want us to think of the Psalms as the songbook of Jesus. These are the words David sang them, and they were true of David, but Jesus makes it clear that they're really about him, and it's really his voice that is singing through him. And so here's the significant thing to me. When we sing a psalm, we're singing the words of David, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we're singing the songs of our Lord. You could almost say we're singing with our Lord in him. Back to the Father. And there's something incredibly powerful about that. Uh, These are the very words uh, of the Lord himself. I guarantee you, Jesus knew all the psalms by heart, and he sang them all. Uh, He he knew melodies to them all, because there were melodies at the time among the people of God. Uh, Imagine being on earth when Jesus was alive, and hearing him sing a psalm. And considering... The significance that him singing this psalm brought to whatever psalm was at hand, whether it's a psalm of lament or a psalm uh, of confession. That's the remarkable thing, the psalms of confession that Jesus would sing, right? He identified with us in the waters of baptism, and he identifies with us, though without sin, he identifies with us in sin. And the other thing, and I'll come back to this at the end, is the psalms, I would suggest, I love our worship. I, I think we were great. But I would suggest that there's about two or three modes to our worship. You know what I mean? Emotional vocabularies. If you look at the psalm, there's like 20 different registers emotionally. Does that make sense? There's all kinds of things going on. And I think that the the psalms are a treasure. They should be a treasure for us to draw out all kinds of vocabulary of the heart in our worship to God. And one last thing about the psalms before I move on is that You know, some of the psalms don't resonate with where we are. 
right? I mean, there'll be a psalm that, you know, is about some injustice done and, you know, God, would you strike down your enemies? And it just doesn't resonate with us. That's the other value of the psalms is they bring you out of your individual emotional concerns and tune you into a wider world of God's concerns. Because I guarantee you, you may not be in lament, but there are some part of the body of Christ somewhere in the world who is. And as we sing, for example, a psalm of lament, we can join in with them. All right, moving forward, this one's a little more obscure, but I think it's uh, central, is Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20. When he goes out to battle in chapter 20, uh, he sends his troops out, but does anybody remember what he does that's unusual? He puts the singers and the musicians in the front. All right, again, I think this is a scriptural way of underlining the fact that there is more than meets the eye going on when the people of God sing and worship. There is something that happens beyond the physical realm. And the scripture in 2 Chronicles makes it clear that that was key to their victory. In the book of Kings, I love this incident. You all remember this? Elisha is asked to prophesy. And at first he says, no, I'm not going to prophesy for you. And they finally beg him and he says, okay, get me a player on an instrument. And it's when the instrument begins that he uh, begins to prophesy. Oh, and I forgot to, I need to back up. I'll come back to this. I need to back up to David in 1 Samuel 16. How does he war with music? Well, Saul is possessed by an evil spirit from the Lord. And David comes in and plays on the lyre and sings. And it does warfare against that, that power of darkness, right? There's, again, something in song. And David is a conqueror, conquering the enemy in song, conquering the enemy in real battle. Then we get to a controversial one, but I'm absolutely convinced of it. The song of songs, okay? The songiest song, right? The premier song of all songs. It is a song about human sexual love. And once again, it's a duet. We get the the man's voice and we get the woman's voice. But there's all kinds of things going on in the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, that is beyond just merely being about human sexual love. The language all through the psalm is littered with imagery from the temple. That should tip us off. All right? The prophets continually relate Israel's time in the wilderness at Sinai as God having a marriage covenant with Israel. I know, I think LCF is in, has been in Hosea and others. Many of the prophets tap into that imagery. So the temple is, as it were, a wedding chapel for God and his people. And the Song of Solomon is about more than human love. It is about something bigger, broader. God's love for his people and their love for him. It celebrates at the end. And, I mean, again, this is, it's clear that something more than just human love is going on. Because in the last chapter of the Song of Solomon, it says that love is stronger than death. Now, we all know in our experience that that's not the case. That death separates loved ones. And so right there in the heart or at the end of the Song of Solomon is a prophecy and a promise of the resurrection. Love is only as strong as as, as death if the resurrection takes place. All right, so the Song of Solomon is, among other things, a a song of resurrection. We get into the prophets, and there's several ways we see this in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me just read a little bit of Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5... Um, There is the song of the vineyard. And again, it has this language of uh, God's love for his people. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it 
And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than that I have done for it? Hopefully you hear in that song the singing of Jesus. Because when he comes into Jerusalem, that's his voice, right? He laments over that city. How often would I have drawn you to myself as a hen draws her chicks to herself? So that's another example of song in the Old Testament. And then, of course, Zephaniah 317. Anybody know what this one? Zephaniah, it's like the only verse people usually refer to out of Zephaniah. The Lord will rejoice over his people with singing. Once again, it's another picture of God singing, as, of God as a singer. Uh, before we get to the New Testament, one last stop, and that is in the book of Chronicles. Um, Chronicles begins with, how many people remember what it begins with? It's one of those really, you know, you, you tap out early. What? It's the longest genealogy in the Bible. It's like nine chapters of genealogy. It's like, ugh. Okay, but all genealogies in Scripture are stories, and there are clues in the genealogies that tell us the story they're telling. That genealogy begins with Adam, and that tells us, okay, we're telling a story that goes back to the beginning. At the center of the genealogy, which is the emphasis point for biblical writers, at the very center is the tribe of Levi. They're the priests. And at the center of that discussion is the appointment of singers. So at the center of this story that the Chronicles writer wants to give us is a story of the people of God singing and how central that is. And I would just connect this. So it's amazing to me that Moses did not appoint music or musicians in the temple. All right. Moses is the man of God. I mean, he sets up the temple system. He gives the law, but he does not add music. David comes along and David is given the freedom by God to appoint singers and to appoint an orchestra, as it were, and to appoint this elaborate musical apparatus. I think it's the beginning of this transition from animal sacrifices to the sacrifice of the self, right? The sacrifice of my very breath, right? The sacrifice of my being to God that we see fulfilled in the New Testament when Paul says we are to be living sacrifices. So song, among other things, is a part of the dominion mandate given to Adam. Right? We're called, mankind, the human race is called to take dominion. And there's a couple of ways in which this manifests. First, song is about taking dominion over your body. Right? Over your breath. All right? Good singers are healthy. Right? Their bodies are in tune. They're able to sing. They're ready to sing. I bet you David had an amazing voice because the man had to be fit because of his lifestyle. So we rule our bodies as we sing, and we bring them into submission so that they bring worship to God. But more than that, instruments. All right, in the very beginning when it discusses the the lineages that bring forth metalworking and instruments and various things, think about what we do with instruments. We cut down a tree. We dry it. We season it. We plane it. We put it together. We make an instrument out of it. We take metal and put strings on it. We We take animal guts. And we put together these things that make music, right? And that hail our souls out of our bodies that are moving beyond our ability to describe and understand. This is a part of the way that we cause creation to be a part of the worship of God. Amen? That as we take dominion, we begin to, uh, we begin to make creation praise. Passive creation becomes an instrument in our hands. Okay. When we get to the New Testament... It's song songs everywhere. All right. In fact, I think we should call the Gospel of Luke, Luke the musical. 
Because as God acts, song breaks out everywhere. And the thing that we don't like about musicals is nobody does that. Right? Nobody goes around and you know, breaks out in song at breakfast. But when God acts, people do. Right? So in the Gospel of Luke, let me just point out four songs, four acts. It's like the overture of the musical that begin the whole thing. Mary breaks out in song. And that has become a part of the worship of the church through centuries. Mary's song. And then Zechariah breaks out in song, and he's been planning this song out for a long time because he's been mute ever since he questioned the angel. And he busts forth in a song. My favorite, well, and then the angels break out, right? People are breaking out. Angels are breaking out in songs, uh, songs with the shepherds. And then finally, my favorite has always been Simeon. I don't know why. Simeon has waited most of his life for this promised fulfillment. And he sees it in the form of a baby that he knows he's not going to live to see what happens with this baby. But man, he breaks out in song. His heart is full of scripture. His heart is full um, of what God has promised he would do. And here he sees it happening and he breaks out in song. Of course, as I said, I think as a pious Jew, Jesus would have sung. But there's more than that. In Matthew, at the Passover, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, it says that, uh, in Matthew 26, it says that when they had sang a psalm or sang a hymn, they went out. That word actually means sing a psalm. We don't know what psalm, but we do know that when Passovers were led, it would have been Jesus leading the Passover and leading the singing. Now, what an image. Right? The disciples there gathered around and they sing, they sing a psalm together. Maybe Psalm 22. It's one of the ones he's praying from the cross. We don't know for sure, but I guarantee you he led his disciples in song. And then again, the writer of Hebrews indicates to us this theme that the Psalms are really about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, it says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And here's a quote from a psalm saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Or imagine that as an eschatological, as an end times vision of the gathering of the people of God and Jesus leading his people in song to the Father. All right, I know we have music leaders But I want to suggest that biblically we have one worship leader, and it's the Lord Jesus. And he gathers up the songs of his people and offers them to the Father. Of course, we know the church sang, and there's many ways we see it all through Acts and other places. The most famous in Acts is, of course, Paul and Silas in prison, having been beaten, singing psalms and praising God. And all the prisoners were listening. What must those prisoners have thought? And then I do want to look really quickly at Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody knows where I'm going probably. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. Um... Verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you pay attention to the grammar here, this is the main command. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what the people of God are called to do, is to continually be filled with the Spirit. 
And then everything else that comes after it is a part of the filling or flows out of the filling. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And there's a feature of this that I want to point out. We, we, fill up, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as a gracious gift of Jesus' work. What does the Holy Spirit lead us to do? One, address one another. It takes us out of ourselves. Right? The Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, takes us out of ourselves and causes us to address one another. This is why I love singing without amplification, and I often love singing without the instruments, so I can hear the people of God addressing me with their voices. We are addressing one another in song. We're teaching one another in song. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and I think the paraphrase is all kinds of songs. Psalms, classic hymns, new songs, everything. But the point is, number one, the Spirit takes us out of ourselves to one another. And then the next move is up in praise to God, right? We address one another, and then we sing with all of our heart in praise to God. And the key here is that our singing as the people of God is not a performance. It is not something for professionals and experts to do to demonstrate how great they can sing or how great they can play. It is something where we address one another and we bring and lift our praises to God. Paul will say the same thing, uh, something very similar in Colossians. But there, instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I think they both go together. We are filled with the Spirit as we meditate on the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that, the Spirit takes us and leads us to one another and leads us into the Father's presence. Revelation, I've already mentioned that in Revelation we sing, see they're singing one of the greatest hits of the people of God, the song of Moses. But it also says they sing a new song. And I think what that means, among other things, is not just we wrote a new song, but it's a new song for when God does new things. And I think we will be singing new songs for all eternity as God unfolds his good purposes for new creation and for us. So back to the beginning, let men their songs employ. I want to encourage you to think about singing with the people of God as one of the major works that we're called to. All right, it is our job. It is our task. It is not the worship leader's task. It is not musician's task. It is the task of all of us. And it's fine to make a joyful noise. In fact, that's even better. Right? But we are called as a people to that work. It is our task, and nature itself cannot do it. Somebody made an observation recently, and I think you can think of some exceptions, but I think it holds true. Christians are one of the few people in our country today who sing together on a regular basis. Now think about that. 200 years ago, if you heard music, it was because you or somebody close to you was making it. All right, we know the greatest songs. We know the greatest selling songs of 100 years ago because there was no medium for recording. It was sheet music. So people knew how to play and read that music and people everywhere were making music. Now it's down to us. And you can think of exceptions like karaoke and concerts. But again, that's a performance. This is where we all get together and we do the work and we carry. We carry it. Amen? So let me give five quick admonitions. And these apply to different people in different ways. But the first thing is just men care about singing and song. It is, it is our task as the people of God. And we need the bass voices. Okay, we need the baritones. 
All right, we need those voices among the people of God. We need the sopranos and altos too, but we need men to do the work of singing and recognize it as part of our priestly task of offering ourselves to God. Second, this is for worship leaders, songwriters, musicians out there. I want to I encourage us and challenge us to deepen our repertoire that I mentioned. Right? I love our worship. We have great songs. But again, sometimes the only register is happy, happy, joy, joy. We need songs of lament for the people of God. All right? There's still reason to lament. I mean, abortion is one, right? There's all kinds of reasons to lament. We need that register. So I'm going to suggest that we, we tap into the Psalms to get inspiration for how to be a people that bring in all kinds of vocabulary of singing and all kinds of emotional registers in our Psalms. The third thing, just that admonition to be filled with the Spirit. All right, it's our continual task. Jesus came, and part of, if you want to summarize, one way the gospel summarized why he came and why he died and why he rose from the dead, it was to give us the Spirit. It was to baptize us in the Spirit. And we're called to be a people who are constantly being filled again and again and again with the Spirit. And as we do that, and this is the very definition of ecstasy, ecstasy takes you out of yourself to others in love and to God in gratitude and worship. Amen? That's what the Spirit will do. He will lead you down in service to other people and up in praise to the Father. The fourth thing. That thing about the militant part of singing. I mean, I don't know. I've not done basic training. But if you've done basic training, you know that chanting and singing is a major part of creating unity. Right? Of creating this sense of togetherness among a group of men. And I just want us to lean into understanding that we've got great work to do. Great battles to fight. But it should start in worship. It should start where David started. In that place of adoration and thanksgiving and appreciation of God. The last one's a little bit different, um, but my kids reminded me of this. Fathers. If you have fathers of little kids in here, I want to encourage you to sing with your kids and to your kids. Um, I used to, you know the Michael Card setting of, of the numbers blessing in, in number six? You know this? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. When my kids were little, I'd sing that over them all the time when they went to bed. And they still talk about, and I'm not a great singer. It has nothing to do with that. It's a father addressing his kids in song with scripture and a blessing that comes from God. Man, it is a, I think it was foundational in my kids' lives. So sing with your kids, but sing blessings over your kids. Um, I think it has, I think it has a unique power. Amen. Well, Ben's going to lead us uh, in, I thought, a great one.